You're listening to DevOps and Docker Talk, a podcast hosted by me, Brett Fisher. I'm a DevOps online course creator, consultant, and a Docker captain. This podcast contains clips from my weekly YouTube live show, where I host a real-time Ask Me Anything style chat with guests and anyone who shows up on YouTube chat, many of whom are students of my Docker courses. You can find out more information, including show notes for this episode at brettfisher.com slash podcast. That's B-R-E-T-F-I-S-H-E-R dot com slash podcast. Thanks for listening. In this episode, I talk with Nirmal Mehta of Booz Allen Hamilton and Michael Irwin of Virginia Tech University about Docker's new partnership with ARM. And we take questions from the live audience. All right. Welcome to the show, guys. Uh, first on the call, I have... This is a call, right? This is a conference call? No, it's not. It's the internet. It's a show! Uh, That's first right. On the, first on the show, I got Nirmal Mehta from Booz Allen. He is the chief technologist at Booz Allen Hamilton, one of the chief technologists at Booz Allen. Uh, he is a Docker captain since April 2016. He's been using Docker since 2014 in various projects over the years. He's old school Docker. He's currently supporting Booz Allen's digital R&D emerging tech efforts. And he's on the show from Durham, North Carolina, just a few hours from me. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Brett. Uh, pleasure to be here. Glad to have you. And you've seen him before on this show. Michael Irwin is back. He's the application architect at Virginia Tech. I'm sure there's more than a few of them, but he is a application architect and also the adjunct pro- faculty instructor for Docker. No, I'm just making making that up. He's, <laughs> he's just a regular adjunct faculty instructor and an awesome person in the computer science department at Virginia Tech. Thanks so much for coming to the show again, Michael. Sure, have me again. Yeah, I'm, I guess we didn't scare you off, so that's a good thing. No, that's a good thing. Um, so we have lots to talk about this week, lots to unpack, unpack uh, even before the show next week at DockerCon. We're going to, I'm sure, hear more announcements about this, but I know it's a topic on all of our minds because we've been talking about it for days now, is the announcement of Docker and ARM partnership and what that really means. So in case you're n- new to this or you haven't been uh, checking the container news over the last, um, I don't know, 24 hours, uh, Arm and Docker dual announced a partnership. I guess that's how you'd say it. They both announced a partnership about uh, basically Docker solving one of the bigger problems for the Arm ecosystem. Now, if you're not familiar, Arm is those chips on all the mobile devices, all the Internet of Things, embedded devices. You probably have ARM chips all over your house and you don't even know it, or maybe you do. And they, they're basically everywhere. Uh, and they are small and tiny little things that are really important in our lives. But one of the hardest things with ARM is still to have a good development experience and to have an easy development ARM because it's a, it's a different processor. It's a different architecture type, so you can't necessarily just run it anywhere. So we're going to talk about this in a little bit. Um, there's some other things I want to just show you real quick uh, in case you didn't know. So my, this is the Node course. And let me just tell you, um, having custom art is like, we all need a digital artist in our lives is what I'm saying. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's very cute. Yeah. This is Foxy. Uh, that's the, the name we've nice. given her. Because, you know, she's a fox. <laughs> And um, I'm now now the new gold standard for anything you put on the internet is you, you gotta you gotta draw a character. Nice. Um, we have we have a Docker captain that does some drawing in there. I'm stuff. surprised the character wasn't whiskey. 
Yeah, we thought about that, and then it was like, well, is it, you know, as whiskey get because when we first started the course, it was way before whiskey, right? so we technically <laughs> had Foxy months before we had a puppy. Um, but yeah, so I'm super excited to uh, have a mascot in the course, and you'll be seeing her showing up. She actually does stuff in there. She like shows up when there's assignments and uh, other cool stuff. So I'm I'm super excited this is out because it's perfect timing to talk about ARM because Node.js is one of the uh, sort of sweet spots on ARM. Um, it, my understanding is since Chrome, the V8 engine is where Node got its start. It was designed for the Chrome V8 engine uh, JavaScript, and that was designed by Google in large part for ARM, right, because of their mobile platform. So it kind of clicked with me yesterday that, hey, I am just happen to be releasing a course related to this. I just happen to be on it. It looks like some of your um, awesome students are already like, you know, clearing a path through that, through your new course already. Yeah, I'm seeing that in the comments already. Yeah, uh, I think people, I think I've been hyping it up for a while now. So hopefully it lives up to the expectation. And, I'm, and sure I'm glad they didn't fall off in the, a long hype table there. <laughs> That's right. That's right. I think someone said. Uh, I think someone in the, in the YouTube said uh, last night. Uh, soon is finally here because for months I've been saying soon, and they're like, I don't think that word means what you think it means. Uh, so instead of Elon time, it's Brett. It's Brett time. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Months are uh, months equal hours. Hours. It's actually code. I'm speaking in code. I'm, I'm actually uh, a, a container spy, and uh, when I say soon. Uh, I'm actually talking on the internet in terms of months. So. <laughs> um, uh, we're, I'm very happy for you, Brett and team. To I mean, it's a it's a big achievement. It takes a lot of effort. I know I've seen you showed me some of the behind the scenes of how much work and love you put into putting the course together, and I, I um, I'm sure people appreciate all the knowledge that you you send out there. Yeah. Well, and you guys too. That's kind of how we got to be captains, right? Like we. Yeah. We blogged on the internet. We uh, talk at conferences. I mean, I think we're all, uh, we've been captains for a while now. And the, in case you didn't know, the way that Docker sort of nominates captains, it's a little bit like the Microsoft MVP program where you have to be an advocate of the technology and talking and sharing all the things you know uh, for a while on a consistent basis. And then you start to get noticed. And um, of course, you can always try to bug people at Docker and, uh, you know, but there is no technical ap application process because it's more about just being a, a community volunteer, trying to help others. And then, you know, hopefully you'll get noticed and, you know, become a Docker captain. But they have a community leadership program in case you're interested that I always try to talk about because I think it's the more important job in the community, which is running meetups and helping in your local community, whether that's at local conferences or talking at other meetups about container stuff. Docker has a whole program for that uh, called, and, and the title, we, we actually get our own mascot. It's a dolphin, right? Yeah. Uh, yeah, <laughs> we get our own swag at the conference. So that's a really neat thing. And that's, uh, that's pretty rare. Not a lot of companies will um, make, you know, add extra content, like an extra half a day on the beginning of the conference just for people that have meetups and that teaches us all the sort of responsibilities of being a community leader and, and gives us better skills on leading because meetups are hard they're deceptively hard if you ever ever run one um <laughs> getting good speakers getting good, just good food on a consistent basis is a hard thing can i, yeah, can I, I just I do it the, the dolphin but the dolphin's juggling like food and uh, that's right microphone and laptop pizza. 
I'll be singing yeah. the lyrics. Uh, uh, just a shout out to the to the Raleigh area. I've I've fallen a little bit in terms of scheduling the Docker meetups in the Triangle area. I promise on this YouTube live channel to pick it back up a little bit. Oh, pick up the pace. Oh man. That being said, though, our Triangle DevOps meetup, which is kind of the largest meetup group in the Triangle area, is rocking and rolling. And I'm also involved with that and the DevOps days uh, conference. So it's not like I'm completely missing the ball, but uh, I, I I do promise to kind of pick up the pace on the on the Docker Raleigh area. Public All right. Well, you man. you heard it here on the internet. It's only it's no big deal because he promised on the internet forever. So it's, <laughs> it's going to have to happen. It's tough though. Yeah, it's no lie. It's it tough. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, especially when uh, it's zero money, right? Like uh, when you have a family and you have a life, it's tough to to make those yep. kind of things happen. Those yeah. are the unsung heroes, I think, of of open source. Really, I mean, obviously, this is not just open source, but the community of tech is one of constant learning. And I have a friend who's been running his .NET meetup for over a decade, and they're the largest meetup in our area. And he was doing .NET to over, and he and he actually. They've had people rotate in and out, but he's always overseen it, and uh, it's just—it's an amazing body of work that you know. It's not like there's a bunch of videos on the internet that show effort. It's—it's it's just showing up. It's like—it's like being on city council or something. It's like, you know, all you hear is—you don't hear a lot of praise. You usually just hear the complaints or the, <laughs> the suggestions. Yeah, yeah. So let's talk about this uh, this Docker Arm thing. Um, uh, Normal, what's your take? Um. I think it's a great move on both companies' parts. Um, I think it's a good move for the community in general. Uh, ARM and the acceleration of IoT and non-X86 chipsets, uh, especially as it goes to more of infrastructure server roles, has been accelerating tremendously in the last, I would say, five years. Um, you know, the oftentimes as as technologists and and hobby hobbyists and smart home hackers, we we usually touch ARM in the Raspberry Pi kind of world in the hobby electronics world. Um, however, one might not know that ARM processors are essentially in a lot of the hardware devices that are at the core of network infrastructure, wireless infrastructure mobile devices, uh, you know, every piece of hardware in your car, uh, in your, in your fridge, in your washing machine, wherever. Right. right? And so, uh, this announcement kind of opens up the world of DevOps and all the advances and efficiencies that the traditional DevOps software development world has been uh, gaining uh, advantages in because of Docker and container containers, it opens up the the this new hardware world to that. And one of the biggest gaps, um, as someone who has done some hardware hacking in the past, has worked on hardware projects at work, uh, doing that loop of development and testing on hardware at the edge has been it's probably the biggest gap in the market yeah. right now. And I think this announcement is, is kind of twofold. One is aimed at, at closing that gap, making it easier to develop on those hardware platforms. And then also as 
ARM processors are going to the server market, making it so just like Docker solves that problem for dev to ops, it solves that problem going from hardware to being able to write code, just normal software development code in on the server space, right? And, and there's some joint announcements around AWS uh, having uh, dedicated ARM instances uh, in EC2. And I think um, there's a lot of advantages there. And I'll leave, uh, I'll leave some space for Mike to comment on it, but uh, I have some follow-up there as well. But, Love to I mean, you basically took it all. Jeez, man. <laughs> <Sorry>. <laughs> no, but I mean, well, I, we're I, leaving. I, I mean, yeah, with back in reInvent, AWS announcing the ARM EC2 instances and everything, and, and you just see, okay, there's dramatic price reduction there too. I, I, I'll admit, I looked at it and like, all right, how can I take advantage of these to start saving some money on my servers and everything? And, and so now making this much easier and more importantly, officially supported uh, means for building containers and, and everything. And um, I'm excited to see where it goes. I, I, I'll admit I haven't done a lot in the IoT space, but I, I definitely see how now it's going to be much more accessible uh, to be able to write and, again, open up the, the DevOps pipelines and everything like Naren was talking about. Yeah. And, yeah, and now we can, uh, we can start talking at these uh, IoT conferences and, and ARM conferences and you know, I think there's going to be an uptick, uh, honestly, around um, the hardware side, and that's a world where I don't I don't know if there's a lot of cross in the in between our industries, right? We we have the typical distributed application developers, folks that are migrating legacy apps, trying to figure out the cloud future. Uh, there's other worlds out there: automotive, industrial, IoT, mobile. Um, even the VR, AR, and game gaming world, and uh, they're at various stages of this DevOps journey. And uh, I think this just opens up that world to to uh, the the new way of doing things um, that the cloud world has kind of gotten accustomed to. Yeah, yeah. I think um, you know us x eighty six people, which is essentially all the laptops. You know, if you're on a laptop or a desktop machine, you're watching this on an Intel processor, most likely. Um, and we sort of have the, uh, the, the spoils of, of all the features and all the great software. And ARM has uh, traditionally been a place where it's, uh, because the processors are so tiny and they're focused on battery and um, efficiency, that they, always, they, they haven't been number one, right? There hasn't been the place where all of that great stuff is. But I think, I think for me, largely due to the smartphone uh, decade that we've had, that has really changed a lot because ARM has been around a while. They're not um, necessarily oh. new. And you know, if, in case you didn't know, uh, ARM uh, for the audience, ARM is ARM doesn't the company doesn't actually make a processor. <laughs> yes. I, I had to learn this recently. Uh, they they license they're a licensing and like consulting and and expertise company, but they don't make the silicon themselves, which is. A really interesting model. It's the opposite model of Intel. So I was watching yesterday after the announcement from Docker. I was watching an uh, there's a YouTube video f on ARM from Azure. It's actually from Microsoft. So if you YouTube around, you can probably find that video. And uh, it's a one of the guys that helps build the data centers or is in charge of data centers talking about their data center designs. And the interesting position for him was it wasn't even about uh, savings, uh, like in terms of energy or whatever. Um, it for them it was a matter of vendor choice that they 
right now, if you think about it, all these data centers in the world, uh, if they're running x86, they're, they basically have two vendor choices, you know, uh, AMD and Intel, and that is their sort of the linchpin of their entire company to be able to build out these data centers. So for them, ARM allows them to then, uh, I think Microsoft was saying they had at least three different chip manufacturers that they had partnered with to make ARM chips for their data centers. So now they look at this as like a diversity play of being able to have all the different options in case something happens at one vendor or one set of chips is delayed or something that they can move something around. And for those of us that are on if, uh, on scripting languages, um, like PHP, Node.js, uh, Ruby, you know, Perl, any of those sorts of things, I, from my point of view, if you're talking about cloud infrastructure, that stuff runs the same way on ARM that it runs on Intel, right? Nowadays, we just kind of do a Docker pull on those images and those all just run. In fact, I, from my checking, uh, all the official images I looked at all have ARM uh, counterparts. In fact, uh, let's just go take a look at that. Let's go look at the node one real quick. Um, yeah, I, I think what you're kind of pulling up on is that Docker has had the ability to run on ARM processors for a little while now. I, I think it's, I think Justin was mentioning that, Justin Comek is uh, mentioning that um, it's been like a couple of years where there have been ARM-based images. Uh, this announcement kind of makes it more production ready. There's a commitment there uh, from both sides. And, uh, you know, there's still some issues there. It's not a first-class citizen yet, and now it is going to be. And there's uh, past the kind of hello world kind of examples, uh, you do get some gotchas. And the other part of this is, in my in in my viewpoint, is when you're talking about these different hardware platforms, often you're also talking about chips that are communicating to other pieces of hardware that might be unique over USB serial some other interfaces and interconnecting those into containers. It's, it still can get a little tricky these days. And when you're talking about GPUs and serial connections and hardware level uh, timing and robotics, um, more, more work still needs to be done on the Docker world to be able to support that. But this announcement is kind of an opening of, Hey, we're taking this seriously. And yes, we're going to work, keep working on, improving how Docker runs on these platforms. So it's even easier in the future to develop against, you know, custom hardware. Yeah. And, and I'm excited too to see kind of how this folds in with orchestration and everything. I mean, imagine opening up a Docker EE environment and going to um, UCP and saying, all right, I want to, I want to deploy these containers across my IOT device fleet or, or whatever. So it'll be interesting to see where this evolves, where this goes in the future. But um, yeah. 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 A lot of this works today. I mean, that's what's uh, the the announcement. I think someone announced. You can tell, like uh, you know, uh, you know, industry analysts aren't engineers usually, and so when they're putting titles up, um, I think it was TechCrunch. Uh, Docker developers can now build ARM containers on their desktops. That title actually would have been the same title like three years ago. Uh, <laughs> you could have done that three years ago. Uh, nothing has changed. Uh, I think Docker's basically going to, their goal is to eventually make it easier, like you were saying, the, the path smoother uh, from dev test to prod. But um, if you go into like, let's just look at the node image, for example, there's this whole list of architectures where you can do Docker run node on any of these platforms. We're talking old ARM, 32-bit ARM, the latest ARM V8, 32-bit uh, uh, x86, which is i386. 
uh, PPC, which is, I, I don't know, was using that anymore. And then uh, I think S390X is a mainframe chip. Um, yeah. So actually, funny story when uh, DockerCon Copenhagen, so a year and a half ago now, kind of did a little hackathon with uh, uh, a couple of the other captains there. And I, I was playing around with making an alternative uh, swarm visualizer, and we had it working with uh, both um, the AMD 64 and ARM and on the S390X and Windows. And so produce one node app that can run on four different architectures. And it was kind of fun to say, you know, this app will run on both ARM and IBM mainframe, and I've never even touched a mainframe in my life. Right. To work on it. It's just, it, what does it mean? It's really cool. What does it mean? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Does TCP will still work on a mainframe? I don't know. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I know. It's, um, I mean, that's, I think, one of the big goals that I always got out of Docker early on was, you know, not only making it easy to run any app the same way with the same commands, but they're also making any architecture able to run the same thing with the same commands. So the goal eventually, and it's not all complete, like the whole path, manifest files and all these different things, multi-arch is not all completely smoothed out. But we're really far, I think, down the road of you being able to build an app, uh, it be on multiple processor architectures at the same time, it's one code base, and you store it in one repo on the internet, and you pull it you pull it based on your decision. So then people think, well, multi-arch, why do I really care? I usually know what architecture I'm going to use. And sort of the example that I give is like, you might want some, like on a Node.js app, you might want some of that architecture to run in the cloud. And up until recently, if you're on AWS or uh, Azure, you had to run it on x86. Like you, you did not have an ARM processor to run it on. So if you were going to test and CI and do all this sort of stuff on your code, before you shipped it out to maybe your IoT devices, you had you didn't have a lot of choices for running it on raw, raw bare metal ARM stuff, right? So it was nice to have all these images and be able to test them and then just basically change the from image to a different architecture and then your code is built into a new image. That's kind of how I was talking about it. But now now that we have like AWS's A1 instances, so if you weren't um, if you weren't aware from Amazon's conference, the most recent one, they AWS announced that they have they've, they're making their own silicon just like Microsoft and they have these A1 instances that start with A1 mediums and work their way up and what's crazy is like right out of the box they have 10 gigabit so $16 a month for a single AMD processor but it's got 10 gigabit networking so all I can think about is like if I got network bandwidth things like that's where I'm putting it is on <laughs> and it's dramatically reduced in price compared to the x86 yeah. versions too so yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, I think that's that's where a lot of that lies. I think there's going to be cost advantages, power consumption advantages, bandwidth. Um, it's also on a trend overall of, you know, custom silicon and, and custom hardware, especially as we start to go into machine learning, um, AI. Uh, a lot of companies are going to start baking their algorithms and making their own hardware and their own silicon uh, specialized toward very specific uh, machine learning algorithms, speci specific type of applications and developing against those uh, is typically been a really big challenge. You have to make your own compilers. You have to make sure that your know, development environments are the same. Um, I think these announcements are the, kind of the first baby steps toward opening up uh, advances in 
in not just CPU, Intel x86 centric development across the board. Yeah. Yeah, it's going to it's going to be what I mean, ideally, uh, a few years from now, we'll have the situation where I mean, it's maybe already here for a lot of people, but for the for the us normal people, it's going to be this decision of what is the let me test on a different architectures and let me see which one's the most energy efficient or bad or, you know, cost effective for my performance that needs that I have. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I'm just going to choose that. And it doesn't. It's it's an interesting world because uh, for the longest time, in fact, uh, one of the things I, I did want to bring up about this topic was um, um, the founder of Linux, Linus, a couple of months ago when um, I think it was after the AWS announcement, he basically came out and was and was oh, they're going to play a video and I don't want them to play. yeah. Um, he was. It was a really. It was. I thought it was a very interesting discussion that he was having. Where he was basically saying, just because ARM exists doesn't mean that it's going to be like this major player. The the the. Re, let's all look back at the reason that x86 became so successful. And his argument was around everyone having this commodity hardware that was the same processor architecture type as in production, so that they could just play locally, test locally, then run it on a server somewhere. And that was the real one of the big secrets to the success. And that ARM doesn't have that yet. So when I read this, I think that, that this should be turned around now and there should be a new... Someone should, needs to write a blog post that basically says, Linus is right and Docker and ARM together are going to be the be- most likely successful way we're going to solve this problem. Yeah, and I, I, don't, I don't know if it's... You know, the use case of like server-side doesn't necessarily talk about power consumption or cost, you know, we kind of, yes, to an extent it's commoditized, but once you start going away from servers and you start to interact with devices and the cloud and multiple architectures and GPUs, that's a different story completely. Like Linus is right about a specific area, um, which is kind of commodity software development and commodity applications. But the minute you start venturing off that farm, that that territory, it's uh, it gets uh, it's it's a little bit harder, and it's not there yet. And so, that being said, though, I, I think ARM is is a lot in a lot of places, and we touch it every day. And does that mean that it's a good thing that it's hidden? Probably not. I mean, if it's, I, I mean, for every every x86 chip, how many ARM chips are there? You know, that are running. I don't know. Right. But I'm sure there's a, a multiplication there or a multiple there. Yeah. Um, so. <laughs> yeah, I forgot how many how many they had an announcement something about uh, the billions of how many billions of it was I th- and I I hesitate to quote because I probably misquote, but it was something like from the start of ARM as a company till the 2000s somewhere they made like 50 billion chips and then the next four years they made 50 billion chips so and then the next like three years they made 50 billion chips or something like that and so it's essentially almost i want to say exponential but it it looks like an exponential amount of chips are being made Um, i don't think that's going to change anytime soon no and traditionally those chips have been found in hardware devices not necessarily on the server themselves but you know 
<laughs> what's not a server in these days? You know? Right. <laughs> like, right. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, yeah, to me, it means like if you're going to, if you're interested in doing something like, like let's say you may want to make a custom, you know, situation on ARM, like maybe you're not just a node programmer, but you're a little, a low level programmer. Like traditionally you'd have to go get, uh, you know, you have to go get a Raspberry Pi and then figure out how to develop on yeah. that. Or you'd have to buy an ARM laptop and then you'd have to be, deal with the limitations of that for development. So, yeah. yeah. So I, I've, I got these, like, I don't know if you can see that. I got these little um, development boards. I don't know. I don't think they are ARM. Maybe they are. I'm not sure. But, you know, there's a full stack server on this on this little thing. It's the same thing that's in, a, in the Amazon Dash button, essentially. Okay. And it, it's got, you know, it's got FTP. It's got a web server. It's, I, I mean, what's not a server? You know what I mean? Right, My toaster right. eventually is going to have a server on it for no reason. <laughs> right. You know what I mean? <laughs> right. It probably already does. If you get one with like an LCD <laughs> panel on it, it's probably got a little ARM chip just to, just to, to power that. They, on their website, they say 130 billion chips, more, more than uh, 130 billion. Uh, there's only 7 billion people on the planet. Right, so uh, more than seventy percent of the world's population are using ARM technology, um, sensors to smartphones to supercomputers. Yeah, so I think it's really cool. I'm excited how easy it is. It's almost so easy that the demos kind of like, nah, okay, cool. I'm running ARM. So if nice. you didn't know, you're on Docker Desktop. So if you're if you're just running Docker Desktop, you can run ARM code right now. You can just either specify the platform in your Docker run command, or you can just specify the image that is ARM based. And it just runs. And it's using that because of QEMU. Uh, if you're not familiar with that, um, QEMU.org. It's an, a processor emulator, essentially. But think of it like virtualization, uh, the same way that it works the same way the virtualization does. And it just allows, it's been around a while. It's not a Docker thing. Docker just bundles it into Docker Desktop by default. And that's what we've been all talking about. So if you go on, what's crazy, you go onto YouTube right now and you just search, um, like Raspberry Pi Docker or ARM Docker or something like that, you'll find three up to five years worth of videos of people demoing how this all stuff, all this stuff works. So yeah. one of the one of the challenges with this announcement yesterday is it, it's it's here. Like <laughs> surprise, <laughs> you've had it for five years. It 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 just works. Like you don't need to wait for the next release. You don't need to wait for DockerCon. Uh, what what the announcement to me was really about was we, what we learned was like. Docker EE is going to come to ARM, right? Like there's going to be official Docker support for the ARM instead of it just works. It'll be, well, you can actually call us for support with this kind of thing. The developer, yeah, yeah the developer workflow experience is going to get better. Hopefully we'll have easier dealing with the multiple arch images and all that stuff. And, uh, and who knows what will be announced at DockerCon next week too. I mean, there yeah. may be a whole new slew of tools and stuff coming. Who knows? Yeah. Yeah. In fact, uh, even just, if you think about it for a second, just Docker Compose in and of itself, being able to run Docker Compose up on my machine, and if I'm on Mac or Windows with Docker Desktop, what that means is I could have one of those service, services running containers in there be an ARM-based one, and then other ones that are x86 all in the same network, all talking to each other, testing apps locally on different architecture types seamlessly. Like it just, It's kind of like, what a world do we live in kind of thing. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's cool because it also opens up the world for things like unikernels, which have also traditionally been difficult to kind of work with, um, but have a lot of advantages. And uh, I'm not a unikernel expert, but this is kind of along that path to getting to some more advanced ways of 
uh, communicating with hardware, it's more advanced kernels, um, more secure, right? So another thing that isn't really part of the announcement, but um, you know, your Docker images come with the ability to be cryptographically signed. And a big challenge when you're talking about hardware is cryptographically signing what's running on, on hardware. Uh, and, and that becomes more and more important as we start to do more and more processing at the edge. And it's also the same things that we can do today on servers on a new processor architecture that, that, uh, that might not have those advantages that x86 have uh, from the, the DevOps world, uh, but now do. Before we hear, I mean, or how often do we hear of, okay, this, these camera systems got hacked and all this kind of stuff. Right. All the time. Yep. Yep. All the time. I think we, so. I think, I think it happens more than we realize. Uh, we hear a lot of news and we're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. But I think, you know, there's a lot of devices. In fact, what's <laughs> interesting is to see devices coming out now, like the Google home, which specifically markets as not having a camera in it so that it can't be hacked so that your privacy is protected by not having a camera in your living room or whatever. I just recently got a, a Google home and it's essentially a little tablet with a speaker built in that uh, runs Android and it has lots of things in it. But one thing it doesn't have is a camera um, because of that, that very, we've, we've all been trained now that anything with a sensor or internet access in my house is potentially hackable and you're right, a Docker, I mean, it, to me, it's like if the app gets hacked, uh, the OS can still replace that container much easier than you would have to like flash the firmware on a device to get rid of the hack, right? So um, yeah. the whole remediation seems a lot easier to me, assuming that they didn't break out of the container and all that. Obviously, there's always those risks, but um, well, okay, so we've been talking about this a while. Let's get some some questions and see what's going on in chat. Uh, thank you so much to those people in chat that have been around for the last 40 minutes, anxiously waiting for us to read their question and <laughs> hopefully have an answer. Um, so feel free uh, to cherry pick if uh, you guys want to just cherry pick any good questions you want to answer. If you see anything. Thank you, everyone who's talking about the course. I appreciate the Ducker course love. Um, so, um, uh, Jose Aponte, not sure if I'm pronouncing his name okay. Uh, he's asking about moving a, a Docker container from dev to production. Like, how does that work? Well, because you use Docker, uh, that is l one of the easiest things to do. Uh, the command that you wrote run. Uh, so if you do Docker compose up uh, D and have a production YAML that points to the same container that sh that's production ready, uh, that's correct. You've essentially productionized your container. And that's, that's the advantage of using Docker in a nutshell. You've basically, because you're using Docker, that is a very easy thing to do. <laughs> and so, Jose, uh, you're, that is an okay command to run. Yeah, and eventually uh, you, you'll want to start looking at orchestration using like Swarm or something like that to to better support your apps in production. But if you're just getting started, yeah, starting off with a Docker Compose up and, and going from there, that's that's certainly a, a good first step towards that. Because um, once you step in the orchestration world, there's there's obviously more to learn and that kind of stuff. But um, again, like Nerm said, it's it's 
starting with this container and you build it locally and you can push it to the registry and just run it from there. Yep. All right. Biker, biker's back. Sorry. We, uh, what, you done? Yeah, go for it. <laughs> uh, uh, biker's back. He's on, he is very consistently on every show. He's one of the uh, Docker mastery students hangs out in chat. Um, says I need to handle TLS and containers because I have to insert HTHSTS in response headers and Docker Enterprise Interlock Proxy won't do that. Where do I do HTTP to HTTPS redirect in the containers nginx.conf? Question uh, mark. And he goes on to say, inside the container, I don't have the domain name, so not sure how to write rewrite uh, that. And then I do I put both 80 and 443 in the container nginx.conf and rewrite HTTP to HTTPS. And then he gives me uh, gives us a rewrite rule. <laughs> He's throwing in code in the YouTube YouTube chat. That is probably not the they probably didn't plan for that when they made the YouTube chat. Let's well, when, when when the comment came up, it flagged it like, "Hey, do you want to show this or not?" And I was like, "Yeah, let's show it. yes, <laughs> yes." Put some regex in your in your system. There's no harm to that. There's no harm. Yes. Um, well, that's a great question, biker. I don't have a direct answer for you. I don't know if uh, either one of you experienced or dealt with HSTS in uh, in containers. Yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, it's just HSTS is just headers to kind of force HTTPS to occur, um, and so, so yeah, there's there's a redirect, there's including those header responses and everything. Um, if if you're running your containers just directly as nginx, and that's where you want your TLS um, negotiation to occur and everything, yeah, um, then yeah, that that makes sense. Um, so having a config file there that's uh, um, injected with a, an environment variable or something like that to kind of say this is this the host that I'm I'm serving because yeah the, the container image you, you probably don't want to bake the image with that host name you want to be able to reuse that container for your staging environment your production environment wherever um, and so whether you want to use that as an environment variable or you have a kind of a startup script that that builds that config file whatever makes sense to you um, that, that's so, typically how we've done it but yeah. Um Whenever I have TLS issues like that, uh, usually that, you know, when, when you start to do the container worlds, you know, you start to go into the, the world of containers, it's, it's proxies all the way down. You know, have you ever heard turtles all the way down, right? It's, it's proxies everywhere. Yep. Um, so I would say you might need to, uh, you, can, you can go into the containers Nginx configuration and, and manipulate headers there. And if that's not working for you, then I would suggest putting another proxy or set of proxies in front of, uh, in front of your Docker EE uh, network, uh, either and configured in some kind of automation script to with the right way to terminate TLS. Just like Mike said, figure out where in your architecture you want to terminate your TLS, uh, and typically uh, because of other systems that you can put in place, you don't necessarily need to terminate, terminate TLS all the way at the last container that responds to the traffic. Right. You can, um, and it also varies on the degree of masochism that you enjoy, but um, <laughs> you, know, you can move that TLS termination point a little bit more uh, further away from the actual endpoint. And um, you can then also establish internal mutual TLS that's its own separate PKI infrastructure that comes out of the box with D Docker EE and Docker 
that can help you ensure that there's encryption of traffic internally, if that's in a concern, but typically public facing uh, TLS termination is done kind of before it hits the majority of your infrastructure. And that's, that's kind of the pattern that most of us follow. Is that right, Mike and Brett? Yeah. And, and I mean, I actually see a comment in here. It was mentioned previously, you're a big proponent of traffic and, and, and yes, I, I am. Um, so actually in a lot of our, clusters, we kind of have the, the traffic service. I'm going to do some kind of hand boxes here, but we have traffic as being our 80 and 443 entry points. And then from there, wherever it's going is is based on the traffic routing rules. Um, and so in this case, Nginx would just be another container that's configured to receive traffic from traffic. And, uh, and so then the TLS termination is actually happening at that traffic's reverse proxy. So it has your SSL certs and everything else that... Yep that you need. And then internally, whether you're doing mutual TLS or just self-signed search or whatever it is that you, that you need to do, um, you know, that that's obviously up to your, your organizational needs there. Yeah. Hey, Brett, can we take a quick pause from the questions and talk about what we're all doing at DockerCon? Let's do it. <laughs> so Brett, it, <laughs> what are you doing at DockerCon? I'm wearing my hat. <laughs> oh, oh, there we go. I don't, my, my hats are, I can't reach them. Um, we should have planned ahead of time. Uh, <laughs> let's see. I'm talking on, I'm doing a workshop on swarm two different days. So if you were, when you registered, you can sign up for workshops. I think they're like a hundred bucks and I'm doing a, a swarm workshop on Tuesday and Wednesday on Tuesday. I'm hosting a media panel. So some of the people from those, uh, places that I was just uh, showing headlines, I will be talking with and t basically we'll have a panel of people in a session where I, um, what do you call it? I, ho I mediate, host, whatever you whatever you want to do. Moderate, uh, moderate. Thank you. Uh, not mediate. I'm like it's not. It's going to be a fight. <laughs> Container fight. Go. Um, and the uh, so I'm doing that on Tuesday, and then on Wednesday I'm speaking on uh, Docker. I think it's awesome. Docker for Node.js rocks for devs and ops. I can't try to remember the title exactly but basically it's it's no js it's it's my course crammed in the 30 minutes uh talking about basically to anyone who's interested in node.js or is do, doing node.js today to make sure that they're using all the best features of docker specifically for how node.js would do it so that's going to be wednesday and then thursday if depending on how well the session goes we all we all have, if you're used to DockerCon, you know that all the votes for the best sessions get replayed on thursday so uh, so session hosts or session um, not instructors uh, presenters are, are vo volunteered by Docker to do their session again on the last day of Docker. So that the cool thing is, is if you're at DockerCon and you couldn't get to all the things on Tuesday and Wednesday, that on Thursday the like top ten or top fifteen or whatever will show back up again, and you'll get a second chance to watch them give their talk. So depending on how Tuesday and Wednesday goes, I might be doing that on Thursday. How about you? Go ahead, Mike. All right. I'm just because I see it in the comments. I'm most excited to see Ashlyn. So um, <laughs> be good to catch up with everybody. It's been a while. Um, no. So uh, Monday, yeah, we've got a bunch of different things going on. Um, so I'm actually doing just like the, I'm doing a talk and a workshop. So my talk is going to be uh, Tuesday, not in the first speaking slot right after the general session, but in kind of in the second slot. I'm doing a uh, getting started with containers. Um, you know, there's a lot of people that are coming that like, what what are these containers? What's yep. what's working? What's the buzz? All that kind of stuff. So we're we're gonna we're gonna explain it all, and 
I mean, of course, we can only get so deep with the breadth of technology there is and everything. So hopefully it's a good primer for the rest of the conference for those that may be new. Um, so definitely come out and check it out. Um, and then I'm doing a workshop both uh, Tuesday and Wednesday afternoon, evening timeframes uh, with Docker apps. So I, I was on the, the show a couple of weeks ago talking Docker app and whatnot. And so we're doing a workshop. I've been uh, collaborating with the Docker app team and uh, talking about all the new stuff that's coming in CNAB support and all that kind of stuff too. And uh, um, it's going to be fun. We, we've got some fun demos, fun things that we're going to build and I'm excited for it. I just need to finish all the write-ups for it. So it's, yeah. yeah. Get, get, get your presentations our, done. Get, get to finish our presentation before we can give them. Uh, right. it, what Michael's talking about, in case you didn't get to see the show like about a month ago, uh, Michael and I were on the show uh, on, if you go to my YouTube channel, in case you're on the Docker channel, that's brettfisher.com slash YouTube. Uh, just search for Michael there and you'll find, or I think uh, Docker app, maybe you can search for that. And he talks, if we go, he has this whole great demo about what Docker app is. It's a new command line utility from Docker that helps solve more problems with your container apps. And we won't go into it today, but if you're interested in that, go check that out. Uh, the underlying technology or standard around that is called CNAB, C-N-A-B, and Docker, um, DockerCon has sessions all about that. In case you're going to DockerCon, you can definitely get that stuff. Nermal, yeah, what are you doing there. at Docker? Oh, sorry. I was just going to say, and if you're there too, yeah, look me up too. I'm doing a couple of hallway tracks as well too. And um, if anybody has questions. Yep. Yeah. Cool. I just, I just did a uh, container native application bundle CNAB presentation at our local Triangle DevOps meetup in the Raleigh-Durham area. So uh, if you want to know more about that, uh, check that talk out as well. Yeah, for the DevOps meetup, but not your Docker meetup. So. I know, I know. It's the same group. It's the same group. <laughs> I know, it's all good. Is it? Yeah, it's um, I have to keep poking you. So. I know. Uh, thanks Thanks for uh, keep it, uh, holding my feet to the fire. Um, so Keeping it real. Keeping it hunted. <laughs> I'm I'm actually not speaking at this DockerCon, uh, which is nice because I've spoken at a lot of conferences. And when you speak at a conference, you don't really get to enjoy <laughs> the conference. And so this time, I'm essentially looking forward to hanging out with my extended family, which is all of the captains, all of all of my Docker friends, all the new people uh, that are new to the Do Docker community, all the community leaders, and also. Uh, you know, seeing what's new, what um, finding out what's new. Uh, I work in emerging technology at at Booz, and so I'm always on the hunt for uh, what that next step is and what what uh, people are getting excited about and and helping folks out. So I'll probably be ho helping with the hallway tracks and just going around and uh, and answering questions and hanging out with uh, all the people that I love uh, from the Docker community. So awesome. I, I get to thoroughly enjoy and not be a nervous wreck before uh, my presentation slot, which is always always the case before, at other conferences. So Yeah. You, you, um, you'll, have to, you'll have to tell us how it is. You have to be like, yeah. let us know later how DockerCon was, because we'll be there, but it's a blur. <laughs> and I'll show up um, to our talks and ask us all the hard questions afterwards. Yeah. <laughs> yes, I'll sit in all your sessions and yeah. Yep. Yeah, <laughs> like front. some of these questions. Shall we go back to some of these uh, questions we have? Do we, do we still have some time, Brett? Yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. We've got plenty of time. Um, uh, what, I, what I would like for you to do is to, to be in my, my session. And then, um, well, you know, Michael's going to rogue show up with a, a, a dino. 
Do you want me to? <laughs> well, no, not really. But uh, it would be. It would still be funny. Um, uh, we can make this it, happen. If it was rehearsed, it would be funny. If it was random, it would be like this thing where you know how you get in like tunnel vision when you're on stage and like something takes you out of it. Like I was gonna say, normal could just sit in the front row and like rage walk out halfway through, like throw up his arms and be like, bah! walk out like that. This. You know, uh, we'll just be like gorilla gorilla sessions uh, where we're just like uh, trying to wreck each other's flow because you get on stage and you get in this flow. I would never do that to you, Brett or Mike. Uh, or I think it's, it's hard too. I mean, with the lighting normally, you can't see the yeah, audience. You can. Yeah, you can no. see like the front row. You can tell if someone's in the front row. That's why I'm saying yes to like stand up and walk out in the front. Uh, <laughs> I'll wear the dino suit and come and eat Nerm or something. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you'll, get, you'll, get the, you'll get the sound guy back to give you a mic and you'll just sit there smacking your lips with your, your sandwich. <laughs> oh my goodness. There's so much there's so much good trolling we could have at DockerCon. But the nice thing is we're a great it's a great group of people and we, we take it very seriously. We know how big a deal it is to stand in front of six hundred people and talk. So we all respect each other and that those kind of shenanigans don't normally happen. Um, <laughs> but maybe someday. Um, so let's get back to some questions. Uh, Josh asks, my company wants an internal server with Swarm, bare metal, with GitLab and container registry to start. How can I go about persistent storage other than volumes? So it's an interesting question because the answer is volumes, but maybe not in the way you're thinking. Because if you think of the standard volumes command, if you're not aware that, like all the other objects in Docker, they have those options on them and volumes have drivers. And whether you're in Docker or Swarm or in Kubernetes, there's essentially a driver ecosystem that allows you to connect to different types of storage as if it was connected to your container natively. And that just depends on the storage, right? Whether it's like EBS storage that's connected to your AWS instance or it's DigitalOcean block storage, or maybe you're in your data center and you have NetApp and you need NetApp iSCSI. Like all these things have drivers essentially to get your container and that's technically still volumes it just requires a little extra piece of software and that's different depending on your setup so it you really the answer is okay well what storage do you need to use and then how uh you know what orchestration or how are you running your containers and let's see if we can't take those two things and get them connected in a way that makes sense and that's usually the way you would would solve that so the answer is yes volumes but also <laughs> drivers and, and I'll throw in there too. So with like GitLab and their container registry, it's got options to actually store the blobs for the each of the layers in the container registry on like S3 or yeah. other other offerings. So um, you can certainly look at those options there as well. Yeah, yeah. yeah those are th those are all there, and like you can even if you used Docker registry and you wanted to do whether it's the open source registry or Docker EE, there's uh, there's also S3 stuff for that, so that you can store your your images in there. Yeah. So it's, it's all there. It's still in volumes. It's just not built into the Docker engine out of the box. So you won't see that option. It's, it's all about adding in plugins. If you actually go to the Docker hub website and you'll find in there under, under like the discover tab, you can actually cl look, click on plugins and you can go and check out some of the volume drivers that Docker has certified. If you're going to do Kubernetes, that would be over on the Kubernetes site. You can find more information there. Of course, Google is your friend, but that's a great question. Yep and often a source of confusion <laughs> yes indeed all right similar to networking drivers right like in all of the things docker and kubernetes there's networking options the things that come out of the box aren't necessarily the ones you should always use so uh you know 
these tools are helping us solve these problems, but they don't do it all by themselves. They need help from the ecosystem. So if you're doing networking, whether it's Docker, Swarm, or Kubernetes, you also need to worry about drivers and plugins and other tools to do that. So, yep. I'm just trying to look through these questions. Uh, yeah. Let's see. You, have, have you two found any? Uh, let's well, see. So I got I'll one. I'll respond to Palantan since uh, it was kind of me. Uh, so, as I mentioned previously, that you're a big proponent of traffic. Yep. Um, are you planning on doing a course on that in Docker? I'm not currently planning on that because I, I don't just have I don't have the bandwidth to do it. Um, traffic, I know, is doing quite a bit. They've hired some um, extra developer advocates and that kind of stuff, too. So I, I imagine that we'll see more um, hands-on examples, tutorials, that kind of stuff coming from them before too long. But yeah. If you yeah. Was, maybe I'll team up with Brett one day. Tra traffic, um, I used it at a hackathon last year, and it's pretty straightforward to get hooked into Swarm, but it can get a little tricky knowing what the labels were. And Mike... Mike, you actually helped me uh, <laughs> yeah. figure out what the uh, what the right labels for the containers. Yeah, the, the, the tricky make it part work. is getting through the documentation and, and everything. yeah, yeah. Um, but once once that works, it like works and it yeah. it's seamless. Yeah, yeah it's, it's all it's kind of like other things like Nginx. It's like the, the configuration is the hard part. Once you got the config working, it it, it works yeah. pretty reliably. Um, in case you're focused on Swarm or just Docker Compose or something like that. Um, I, I'd say go to dogversus.cat. That's actually my GitHub repo for Swarm examples. I'll throw that in. That was in um, my YouTube chat, right? Did you put Did you put that in there? Okay. Yeah, I'll put that in. I'll put that in the other in the other chat too. So dog versus cat is is me Oops. Uh, using the um, using the Docker's sample voting app and just sort of turning it up a notch with a whole bunch of examples in YAML. And one of them is one of my favorites actually is the traffic one. And so if I go here to the stack proxy global, I've got what I consider, uh, unless you want to use traffic enterprise, their new offering that does probably a lot of this out of the box without having to manually do all this stuff. It's got a lot of sweet stuff in it, including, um, a traffic init. So basically, there's the traffic, uh, there's the traffic uh, binaries that you want to run in the front of your containers that are sitting at the edge of your environment, and then you have sort of the database and the backend stuff that's make, making the decisions. And so this uh, stack file for Swarm breaks all that out, and it doesn't even require a, a config file for traffic. It does all the config, and this is one of my favorite things of of traffic is that it allows you to do all the config sort of fileless by just throwing in command line options for everything you want to do, which is extra effort on their part to support both kinds of development because you can use their Toml file, I believe, to do the same thing. But what's for us is great is that we don't need to then store a config and have something. Uh, we can just look at the Docker command that's run and that shows us the whole config. The other things in this file that I'll just talk about for a second is that because it's highly available, it has a console backend Unfortunately, right now, the console backend is not HA, but uh, it allows you to have multiple traffic front ends that all agree on their configuration from a backend storage, as well as we're protecting the Docker socket. So if you're familiar with these sort of tools, when you start talking about orchestration, you need to worry about those tools, especially proxies, being able to talk to your orchestrator. So whether it's Swarm or Kubernetes, they need to be able to talk to those APIs to get the information about your containers. Because the last thing you want to do 
is update your proxy manually every single time you launch a new container that needs a web URL, right? That's that's not the way to do it. You definitely want a tool right. that can understand your orchestrator, right? We, we all have more important things to do than that. So on this one, uh, it's using a, a, a small little library, essentially, uh, that's protecting the Docker socket and making uh, giving it read-only access to traffic so traffic doesn't have too much access to it. And it uses the network for that. It's a pretty neat... Uh, I didn't. I didn't make it, make it up. I just put it in this file and made it work. So uh, it's a pretty neat way, I think, to increase the security on your setup so that the traffic front ends can be off of your managers, which is important to keep them in sort of the DMZ, and then have the the things with the full permissions in the back. But you don't even need write permissions. You really just need read permissions for traffic. So that's pretty good back there. And then down at the bottom, we I have all the networking configurations and the volumes necessary to make all that work. So. Yep. Uh, I worked long and hard on that one, so check that out. <laughs> so yes, we should make it course. Awesome. <laughs> I'm going to have to check that out, Brett. Yeah, uh, it, and it honestly, it just works. If you're curious about the way that that makes like another app work, so if I just go into a different stack file, this one's for Ghost, um, the only thing I have to do is to throw in a couple of labels, uh, basically two, what port is the container running on and what URL am I responding to? And then traffic picks that up automatically and then can route that traffic. Um, and so for my, my, it's a really great demo setup because you can, you can shoot a DNS wildcard to a single swarm host and then just keep up making new names and, and compose files and throwing up stacks and suddenly those websites just work. Like you don't have to change DNS. You don't have to do anything other than just do Docker stack deploy. Docker I, stack I do deploy. exactly that for my machine at home. I've got a wildcard wild DNS pointing to it and then I just use Let's Encrypt to yeah. SSL oh yeah, and Let's Encrypt. Like, and it comes with Let's Encrypt. Like that to yeah. me, this is the new standard of proxies. Like, now I look at proxies and go, well, can it do Let's Encrypt automatically? Because if not, I'm I'm not sure I'm interested. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I don't know if that's as as important in the enterprise world, though. This is yeah. true. This is true, right? But I mean, if like someone was talking to me this the other day, so I, I former life, I used to do. Uh, I had a job where I was working for the city government, and I got hired to do PKI on Windows. So I was essentially building out the certificate platform for a 7,000 node enterprise. And that's where I got, I, I got my teeth. I cut my teeth on PKI for that job. And a um, little secret is they hired me for it when I, I knew what I was talking about, but I didn't have a lot of experience, but they hired me anyway. And they did not regret it. Luckily, I did not get let go from that job. Um, but the PKI infrastructure all has a web APIs. So I'm just like, I want someone to make the next thing is obviously we have open certificate stuff, but Microsoft is a big enterprise deal when it comes to PKI. And when you set it up really well, it it's kind of works awesome in your environments. There's a they have a web interface where you can get certificates, and I'm sure Nermal's played with this stuff. Mm -hmm. But um, that that has an API built in, so it would be really cool for someone to have like a traffic plugin that will do the same thing that Let's Encrypt does, but does it against Microsoft PKI. That would be that's on my wish list. Is to because we need that level of ease in the enterprise like if this app is coming from the right host and the right permissions give it a certificate from the internal enterprise you know basically follow the same rules as let's encrypt uh because obviously most enterprise apps like you're saying are not publicly facing so they can't that's, yeah. one, of the, that's one of the requirements of let's encrypt is it has to be able to validate that your app is real and the dns is real um can't really do that in a data center most of the time uh so you know I think a lot of the questions, and, and this is kind of universal, especially as community leaders and doing a lot of meetups and training, 
and and maybe maybe you don't see this, but the top top questions I see are domain name related, TLS related, and certificate related, and maybe NTP sometimes when when your timing's off because that affects yep. the first two. And Docker solves a lot of problems, but it's not going to solve. It's not going to. It doesn't solve your domain name issues or your TLS issues, and in fact, it forces. I think in the past, and and this is from doing a lot of legacy and enterprise work, you can kind of shortcut doing the domain name stuff and the TLS stuff by just hiding behind the network operations team setup and hiding behind a firewall, and it's not your problem anymore. When you start to work in the world of distributed applications and containers, it it becomes the for it, it you can't shortcut it anymore. You're forced to deal with it, and I think. That's where a lot of the problems and issues come from, where, where we are very used to kind of like, oh, we'll fill in the certificate later, or we'll fill in the domain name later and do all that stuff later. And But you actually need active DNS working. You actually have to have some kind of oops, PKI uh, system yeah. up and running yeah. uh, and, and have valid certificates. Otherwise, um, like I said, the container world and distributed application worlds all proxies and proxies rely on those two things working well right and you can't you can't and, yep. man in the middle it's very hard to debug certificate issues because it's designed to not be man in the middled right and to be de- to be debugged and so yeah. your traditional kind of mental way of thinking about debugging it doesn't work the same way. And I, I think a lot of these questions we're seeing here about headers and IP addresses in containers and um, H- HSTS and certificates, it's all because you have to, ha- there's proxies in between the traffic as it's coming in um, and, and the actual container. Um, and the containers by default are kind of on a port basis. They're not associated directly with an IP address in the sense that like a virtual machine might have or a bear or a server might have. And so, you know, the part of the network stack that you care about is it, it might not all be there in that same way that you're used to in a traditional enterprise, if that makes any sense. Yeah. Well, I think this is also, <laughs> in, this, is, this is great. This is a, uh, it's a little bit of a tangent, but you know, this is the indicated, this is indicative to me of the fact that, this shows that Docker is maturing because we're dealing with these enterprise issues. A lot of this stuff, the cloud solves for us, right? Like apps are predominantly open to the internet in a lot of, in a lot of ways, at least web apps are. So Let's Encrypt will work. Uh, NTP is solved by the cloud provider most in most cases. Like a lot of these things have been worked out. There's automated certificate providers on these clouds now. I'm just going to humble brag here for a second. I have a post from 15 years ago on my old website, Fishbrains, in case you in case you followed me in a, a while i have an old website 20 years old now that i would blog about windows forever and i just kind of moved i left it there as an internet archives that kind of situation but i have this really long detailed article on the windows ntp it's actually such an old article that the html codes are broken in it because i've moved it from blog engine to blog engine to blog engine but i kept it up because it's one of my still one of my most popular posts from 15 years ago about setting reliable time sources, dealing with time sync and virtualization. Uh, it just goes on and on and on because I was dealing with it. I mean, I'm linking to a, do- a Word doc on Windows 2000's website. Like that's how old that document is. <laughs> and, awesome. it, and, and I would say 90% of it is still true today. Like 
Yep. Time hasn't changed. The way we deal with time on the internet hasn't changed. We have SNMP now, or SM, SNTP now, a little bit simple. Um, and But the, the, pro, the base protocols for this stuff, and yeah. if you've ever dealt with time, it it sucks. I mean, Docker is not without its situations dealing with time yeah. and resolving time in containers versus host versus yeah. the physical host. And If your time is off, if your names can't resolve, and if your certificates aren't valid and trusted, nothing works. <laughs> nothing works. And, and you're not going home for the day. You're staying at work. <laughs> and those those three things, plus maybe like an actual network connection, <laughs> like not, assuming the network connection is up, <laughs> um, you can't assume those three things away. And uh, it's kind of an 80-20 thing. I think those three things kind of are the source of... 80% of the issues and then maybe yeah. you get into storage and other things, but um, th there's another question here, uh, maybe kind of getting away from this topic. Uh, yeah. Multiple workloads, one being more yeah. CPU incentive uh, intensive. So this is Jonathan Detroit um, or Detroit. Sorry for about the, about the pronunciation uh, and a, and a stateless app. Uh, tips on running two different workload types in one cluster. And when do you decide to use a second cluster? Uh, I'll, I'll have a shortcut answer. It depends on your budget. Um, but <laughs> consulting answer but depends. That's yeah, that's a salty. That's a kind of excuse answer. Uh, what, what's the default swarm um, or Kubernetes uh, container scheduling algorithm? It's kind of spread. Yeah, it's just, spread. it's kind of like random, right? Or is it bin packing? It, it's spread. It's spread. Spread meaning so, that it will intentionally spread, right? The workloads will intentionally go on a different node if there's too many workloads on one node. Yes. And I, I not, think that's at a, at a per service level, not across all services. Yeah. So if you have like three machines, three replicas, it'll try to spread those three replicas, but not necessarily you have, it's going to spread across services. Yeah. And the, the classic consulting answer to this would be, it depends. And that would be, your, your CPU intensive load, if it's long, I would say it depends on how long running those containers are. And if you have a container that's CPU intensive, that's just one container uh, that's long running, it might make sense to just allocate a certain part of your cluster for that specific workload and make sure that your other apps are not on that, that they don't get deployed. Now, not knowing if you're on Swarm or Kubernetes, that might that does make a little bit of a difference here, but you might not need a second cluster because one cluster means that you have multiple machines that can take that work. And I wouldn't futz around with the default scheduling unless you really need to and you see some weirdness there because I think over the long run, it's kind of hard to be more efficient than random <laughs> at times. And you might have some more knowledge that you can label that container with. So if you know it's long running, if you know when it's going to be most resource intensive, when those events that trigger those, that workload is are, are happening, that's more information that you might be able to script or do some automation and, and label those containers to be more efficient based on that additional information. But if it's kind of, you know, a, uh, a, uh, a bell curve distribution or a Bayesian distribution for that, you, I would just let it be and, and see how that compares to 
trying to optimize it too early. Yeah, and kind of to add on to that <laughs> yep. too, I mean, it's, I'll talk swarm world and, and it's still kind of analogous to, um, so like Normal was saying, you know, you can have a couple nodes that are labeled in such a way to kind of say, okay, this these nodes are maybe um, CPU intensive nodes. For example, if I'm running AWS, okay, these are T3 families, these are my C families, whatever. And, and for a CPU intensive workload, you can set the placement constraints to say right, this this workload can only run on that the CPU that the instance family that's better supported for CPU intensive workloads. Um, and then I could just put the stateless app that may be more burstable on a T3 workload, for example. Um, and, and so you can use placement constraints to help kind of game that system a little bit. Um, for us. A lot of times the decision to go to a second cluster is usually more on RBAC needs than workload needs. You know, if, if I want different administrators for different ones or I want to change things up. Um, of course, if you're using Docker EE, there are ways to, to work with that even on, uh, in a single cluster. But if you're using Community Edition, it's like, okay, I want this team to be able to deploy their services, but they can't touch these other services, then that, that would be a, a good reason to go with a second cluster. Yeah. I, uh, the, to me, I mean, we're going to all weigh in, weigh in on this, but I think we're all saying the same thing. To me, it's yep. uh, one cluster until you can't. I mean, yep. the whole goal to me of orchestration is that we're reducing the management overhead of managing individual nodes. And if you start breaking the the the, the, the clusters out, all the clusters have various technologies and tools to help you isolate workloads in places you need them to be. If you need it in a DMZ, if you need, yeah. And so that all exists depending on whether you're using ECS or you're using Azure or you know you're using... Whatever your, your tool is, Kubernetes, Swarm, uh, you know, you name it. If it's a product that's designed to have multiple physical servers, multiple OSs in the same cluster, then it's got a way for you to control those apps so that you can, if your concern was, you know, you don't want to have the CPU and the static ones on the same server, then you can easily do that in various ways. They all have a slightly different way of doing it. Uh, they have different terminology for how you do it, but they all can do it. And I, I mean, most people don't even realize that you can do a lot in one cluster and most people think, oh, well, that doesn't that put all my eggs in one basket? And I don't so I, I don't really see it like that. That's like saying um, that's why you have multiple servers, right? You're re you're increasing all the different redundancy layers. You've got all this different stuff, and the things that operate a cluster, they can break in most in most cases. They can break in ways that will still let your apps keep running and your servers are fine. You just can't necessarily continue to operate the cluster until you fix those broken things. So it doesn't mean that you're putting all of your application eggs in one basket in my mind. It just means you're simplifying the, you know, the management overhead. And so if you start creating arbitrary clusters, like, you know, maybe you have a dev test cluster and a production cluster. And the reason for that maybe isn't what you're thinking, because as an ops person, what I always want is my ops team to be able to screw up on clusters before they screw up in production. Because developers get dev and test to test and dev all day long, and they make all kinds of mistakes to learn and fix their stuff. But operators often don't get a, sort of a real-world setup that someone would care about if it broke in order for them to make mistakes early. And so if they only have a production cluster, they're going to make their mistakes and learnings in production. Because often, you know, if, if it's a production-y like system, it's, it's got to be a little bit different. And so I'm always advocating for... If you're a real shop with like real money businesses running on this stuff, you know, no matter what cluster technology you're using, have two clusters, not because you need that kind of isolation, but have two so that you can learn and do some real world stuff on one that's like dev test, staging, whatever you want to call it, 
pre-production and then have that real production cluster so that you can learn without breaking bad things. Yep. Anyway, that's my advice. Yep. It, it's free today. So, <laughs> um, you know what right, they I, say about free advice? What do they say? It's worth every penny. <laughs> well, uh, then, you know, us talking on YouTube is worth a whole lot right now. You're getting the best bang for the buck right now. That's true. Um, all right. Any other, I don't, I think we're uh, out of questions. So we're going to give you one last shot to get questions in before we wrap this up. Um, before we, we always have like one last good question that someone asked, but before we do that, um, Michael, where can people find you on the internet? All right. You can find me pretty much anywhere with the name Mike Sir 87, M I K E S I R 87, um, Twitter, GitHub, everything. And, and a lot of people ask, where does that name come from? Um, so Mike, Michael, Mike, okay. S is my middle initial and it's actually Scott. So when the office was really big, Michael Scott, I, I got that a lot too. So, um, and then Erwin IR. So I, when I was, uh, I don't know, 12, I made my first Hotmail email address. I was like, Mike, sir, that sounds so cool. 87. And so it's just kind of stuck. And you stuck. Since. You stuck with yeah. it. Good commitment. <laughs> I, I, call I, me I, Sir Mike and I, I'm like, oh, sorry, that's. I'm whatever. impressed with your commitment over your lifetime. <laughs> that's right. So that's me. How about you, Normal? Uh, you can find me uh, at Normal at normal Faults. Uh, I basically everywhere uh, except for LinkedIn. Uh, and I think uh, the LinkedIn address is somewhere in there. Um, but my main, my main kind of page, I, I, I promise to put this up sometime this year. Uh, we'll be at normal.io. There's nothing there right now, but uh, uh, normal faults is, is kind of where you can find me uh, on the Twitters, on the, uh, you know, GitHub's, Docker, wherever. Got two promises and commitments in a single episode. I know. I gotta. I gotta. I'm really holding myself up to this. <laughs> yeah. Does anyone ever say uh, normal faults? Because that would have been a fun. Uh, I I think you know most people's phones will autocorrect me to normal anyway. So I'm, just, <laughs> I'm just embracing. That's a, that that's a great. That's a great bonus feature. Is that <laughs> phones are phones already know my handles on the internet because they it can't spell my name. <laughs> yeah <laughs> so thanks for listening and I'll see you in the next episode